and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Sami Hamdi, editor-in-chief of the International Interest. Sami, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Bill. Now, I am an avid follower of your Twitter account. That's uh, at Sal Hachmi, S-A-L-H-A-C-H-I-M-I, all caps. Uh, I find your tweets are thought-provoking, and you know what? They can be quite provocative as well at times. But I thought we should move beyond that tyranny of the 280-character limit and open up a conversation about uh, some of your recent tweets. Uh, you ready? Okay. Well, sounds like you're going to hold me to account. <laughs> All right. Let's begin with the tweet you put out about Turkey's President Erdogan attempting a reconciliation with Egypt in which you suggest, quote, Erdogan is very concerned over East Med and uncomfortable with how events in Libya are unfolding. Okay, let's open that one up. Erdogan's efforts to patch things up with Sisi, the politics of East Med offshore gas, and Libya, where Egypt and Turkey were on opposite sides. Um, Why is Erdogan feeling uncomfortable? I think, first and foremost, it's important to understand the gravity of what Erdogan is doing in offering reconciliation with Egypt. When uh, Sisi overthrew uh, the democratically elected president, Mohamed Morsi, Erdogan uh, essentially raised the flag, essentially with his bombastic uh, rhetoric that it was illegal, that it was wrong and that he would not accept it and that he would champion uh, the cause that would try to restore the democratic process. And he was so eloquent in his rhetoric uh, defending the Egypt's democratic transition, albeit pr- probably primarily because it was his ally that had been uh, overthrown, the Mursi and the Muslim Brotherhood. But irrespective, his rhetoric was so eloquent and people believed that his stance was genuinely rooted in this sort of uh, principled uh, defiance of the military coup that we saw opposition figures begin to move from London, from Paris, from European capitals and relocate to Istanbul in order to find this sort of haven whereby they would be able to engage in their opposition activities in order to resist the military regime, to resist the oppression, to resist uh, what is often touted as a tyranny, to resist the mass incarcerations of opposition, to resist essentially uh, the suffocation of all democratic practices uh, in uh, Egypt. And Erdogan, irrespective of the foreign policy difficulties and dynamics, irrespective of the repercussions, irrespective of the Turkish institutions' bewilderment that Erdogan was going to compromise Turkey's national interest and alienate the entire Gulf region of Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, uh, and uh, Egypt uh, in, in North Africa, for he was willing to compromise the national interest by bewildered, by alienating them. Uh, essentially, uh, Erdogan gave off this, um, this position of strength that I am strong enough to be able to take these sort of principled stances. Now, when we look at the situation in Egypt, nothing has changed. Sisi continues to crack down opposition figures. He continues to arrest the opposition. He continues to essentially reign uh, using the security apparatus, cracking down on all dissent and opposition. So nothing has changed on the Egyptian front. Therefore, for Erdogan to suddenly cast aside all of that bombastic rhetoric and come along and say, you know what, Sisi, let's talk, let's come together, let's try to reconcile once more, suggests that something has changed on the Turkish front. Now, that essentially means that Turkey is no longer in this position of perceived strength that Erdogan gave off that allowed him to compromise the national interest for the sake of these principled stances, such as the defiance of the military coup. And that's primarily because of two fundamental issues, as I alluded in my tweet. The first 
is the Eastern Mediterranean, in that despite Turkey flexing its muscles, sending its warships, uh, uh, essentially uh, re re reacting to the provocations from Greece and at times provoking Greece, the reality is that Israel, Cyprus, Italy, Greece and Egypt are still negotiating between themselves over the division of the resources in the Eastern Mediterranean and are still isolating Turkey. And Italy, while it gives off statements that Turkey should be respected and included in these discussions, the reality is that this has not really translated into any tangible developments aside from the occasional summit or the occasional meeting here and there. In other words, the uh, anti-Turkey bloc is unrelenting in its pursuit to isolate Turkey and try to contain its expansionist uh, influence. So Turkey realizes that now it needs some allies and it's decided that Egypt is most amenable to allying with Turkey or at least developing a friendship that will help temper the anti-Turkey sentiment. The second is Libya, where despite Turkey's intervention and rescue of the GNA, it's still struggling to assert its influence over the political process that's taking place as a result of a resurgent US that is intent on supplanting Turkey and ousting Turkey from Libya as opposed to working with it to remove uh, uh, Russia. Also, the Libyan factions, uh, and let's be honest, this is rooted more in inferiority complex when they compare between an alliance with Ankara and an alliance with the global superpower Washington, the reality is that while they may uh, give Ankara words and uh, suggest that they will be uh, loyal and firm allies of Ankara, they are not going to reject Washington. They are not going to reject any approach by US officials. And herein lies the concern for Turkey, in that when it intervened and when it rejected Sisi, who was reeling and offered the Cairo declaration and said, guys, okay, you made your point, let's talk. When it essentially thought that it would be able to control the political process on Libya, it found that it, it, quite simply that things did not necessarily go its way and it had to deploy force and bully the GNA into signing these contracts. Saraj, who dragged his feet on the implementation of the contracts, was receiving these Turkish heavyweights, Ibrahim Kalan, Berat al-Bayrak when he was in government, the defense minister, uh, Chavush Oglu, Erdogan himself took an interest flying to Tunisia to try to rally uh, regional allies. In other words, there is a sense that Saraj did not want to be beholden to Turkey and was opening channels to other international powers. And now we have a situation whereby the US is really resurging and backing this new government, Debeba's government, who while respecting the Turkish agreements, it's clear that Turkey is no longer the dominant uh, influencer on the Libyan political process that it had the potential to be when it intervened in the first place. So these two concerns mean that this isolation that Turkey has compounded by the domestic economic situation means that Erdogan is trying to rein in uh, the rhetoric and trying to open new bridges trying to establish new alliances because the isolation is beginning to uh, take its toll on the Turkish economy and with elections in less than two years uh, Erdogan is no longer in a position whereby he can afford to gamble uh, and present this show of strength that he is that we've become accustomed to hearing from him and you couldn't get all of that into 280 characters but but thank you that's that's <laughs> that, that's very useful Sami I, I want to move on to to Yemen where you tweeted the other day, when we talk about the Yemen crisis, it should not be about Saudi Arabia. Sammy, the Saudis started the war. I, I always argue that, um, so, so there is a, a famous saying by uh, Ali bin Abi Talib, who was the fourth uh, caliph uh, of, of, of the Muslims. 
And Ali ibn Abi Talib said that the truth is not judged by who is defending it, but rather a man is judged as to whether he defends the truth or not. In other words, the Yemen crisis should not be judged simply because we don't like Saudi Arabia and therefore anything Saudi Arabia supports is necessarily wrong. Saudi Arabia is in Yemen for its own reasons and we'll go into that slightly later. The reason that I put that tweet out is to remind everybody that what took place in Yemen was not the result of Saudi intervention, but the result of the Houthis reneging on the national dialogue outcomes and the democratic transition and six or seven months before elections were due to take place the Houthis who knew they would not win the elections decided to embark on a military and armed uprising seizing Jof and Amran and then allying with the former president who was ousted in the Arab Spring ousted in the revolution Ali Abdullah Saleh who provided them with heavy weaponry that allowed the Houthis to take uh, Sana'a and the UN response was to entertain the prospect of a military council at the time whereby the Houthis were asked if they could incorporate some of the other political parties and the UN would essentially recognize this government. When the Gulf ambassadors withdrew from Sana'a, the United States left its ambassador in Yemen suggesting it was ready to entertain the prospect of a new regime brought about by Houthi force. It's also important to remember that Saudi did not intervene when the capital fell. Instead, the Houthis were so emboldened by the lack of international reaction to the overthrow of the democratic transition that they advanced to the south to Ta'iz, to Lahj, to Zala, and they got to the outskirts of Aden such that President Hadi, just as he had fled Sana'a, was forced to flee Aden, go to Riyadh and say, please, international community, rescue our democratic transition. Don't let the Houthis seize this country by a coup. And Saudi Arabia and the Arab coalition essentially filled a vacuum that the international community was unwilling to fill, which is to exert the efforts to try to restore the internationally recognized government. The problem in Yemen, therefore, is not necessarily that Saudi intervened. Saudi is not a knight in shining armor. It's interest is not necessary in restoring the internationally recognized government. Its prime interest is in pushing back Iran. But Saudi is not the cause. Saudi is the symptom. The cause of the entire conflict was the failure to force the Houthis to respect a national dialogue that they themselves signed to. And the problem with focusing on Saudi, and this is the, primarily the point I wanted to make in 280 characters, is that when you focus on Saudi, you take away from the heart of the problem, which is that when you're putting pressure on the Saudis to stop the war, you're not applying equal pressure to the Houthis. When you're offering negotiations now when Houthis control Sana'a, when they control Hudayda, when they control the Northern Territories, you're essentially rewarding military gains. And you've now sent a clear message, which is that the international community will not defend any democratic outcome, but will certainly offer a negotiations that respects power dynamics if a militia is strong enough to resist any campaign, to oust it and force it to respect any dialogue outcome. In other words, the Houthis have taken Jof Amran, Sana'a and Hudayda. The international community has no interest in restoring the democratic transition. It has no interest in ousting Houthis and forcing them to abide by that agreement. So it wants to come up with a new agreement that will recognize Houthis military gains, that will recognize the STC's military gains, that will render the internationally recognized government obsolete, and that will force the Yemenis to, uh, uh, to, to fall under a government that is negotiated between groups that force themselves using the barrel of the gun. The Houthis in, in attacking Ma'rib today, they are doing so because they believe that the international community is on the cusp of recognizing the military gains. That because they don't want to rescue the, interna the democratic transition, they are willing to entertain a prospect in which the Houthis, who are a minority uh, in Yemen, they are ready to give them an outsized influence over the rest of Yemen, quite simply because they can't be bothered 
to engage in paying the price required to ensure a stable and smooth democratic transition. And I think that's the point that I wish to highlight in that even those who back the internationally recognized government, Kamal al-Baghdani, a very prominent uh, Yemeni commentator, said yesterday on Twitter that when you've got allies like Saudi, you don't need enemies. In other words, an ally such as Saudi by itself destroys your cause, even when it claims that it's supposed to support uh, uh, the cause. And the Saudis historically have never been pro-unification. They've always been pro-division. The reason the Saudis were asked to help, were asked for help by President Hadi is because nobody else was willing to offer that help. And Yemen was about to fall under a military campaign by the and Ali Abdullah Saleh that overthrew the democratic transition. If we do not focus on the cause, we will never find a solution. And if we come up with a power sharing agreement in the manner that the, the, the US did in Iraq, where it simply divided powers between Kurds, Sunnis and Shias, what you will have is a paralyzed government that rewards on the basis of power, that removes all agency from the people and that essentially feeds into society. You create the, those divisions in society. And the reality is that based on the current circumstances, without an acknowledgement of the necessity for an enforcement mechanism to respect a democratic transition not built on brute force and power dynamics, the reality is that we're heading far closer to partition than we are to a democratic transition or a unified Yemen. Mm, yes, and of course, in all of this, the Yemeni people are the ones who pay the, the biggest price. Uh, moving on to Israel and uh, the UAE, you tweeted about uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's uh, his trip to Abu Dhabi to meet with uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, his uh, aborted trip. And uh, of course, the Israeli press had claimed that Mohammed bin Salman was going to join those two uh, secretly. And at that point, you said uh, this, uh, Israel cares little for MBS's sensitivities. For Tel Aviv, this is a victory over a conquered people. And it is preposterous that any Arab state should feel it has any leverage over it. I mean, and of course, today we have uh, in the Israeli press reporting that Mohammed bin Zayed is furious with Netanyahu because Netanyahu was throwing around uh, promises and claims that the Emiratis were prepared to dump $10 billion uh, into the uh, Israeli economy. So unpick this one a little bit more for me, uh, if you will, Sami. I think it's important to uh, assess that uh, or to state that normalization is viewed very differently between the UAE and between Israel. The UAE believes that it can be seen as an equal partner with Israel and that the US can see the UAE and Israel in equal terms, in terms of their relevance, in terms of their importance and in terms of their uh, strategic capabilities. Israel, however, sees normalization as part of the wider battle to establish Israel in the region, not just within the borders that we see today or even in the borders of Palestine to revive this biblical notion uh, of uh, Israel that existed before that has always been the aim since the establishment of the Zionist state and I think that when we look at the interaction of Netanyahu since normalization Bin Zayed alluded that there was a promise of F, uh, F, uh, F30, F, F15s, F35 sorry uh, and uh, Netanyahu came out and said, no, I'm not for uh, the sale of F-35s to the UAE, publicly humiliating Mohammed bin Zayed. And Trump had to get involved and say, listen, just give it to them. I want this normalization thing to work. When he meets with Mohammed bin Salman and talks with Saudi officials who ask for the greatest secrecy in any of these meetings, while bin Salman tries to navigate society by implementing social reforms, by socially engineering Saudi society to prepare them for accepting normalization, 
uh, Netanyahu simply shows all disregard for these sensitivities that bin Salman has and goes out and leaks that he's about to meet Muhammad bin Salman or that he met him on an island or that Saudi Arabia is facilitating normalization and that bin Salman should be protected and he's a friend and that Biden should go easy on Muhammad bin Salman. In other words, where the Saudis are asking the Israelis, please, please, uh, we're not in a position to publicly declare that we're talking to you. We're doing our best to go towards it. Netanyahu is essentially saying, I don't really care about this. I'm going to announce to my people that I'm getting closer and closer to normalizing with Saudi Arabia because that is in my interest and that is in my benefit. And the reason Netanyahu does that is because he knows he is in the position of power. Hamid bin Jassim, the former Qatari prime minister in 2018 in an interview with France 24 said that when Arab states get close to Israel is because they see Israel as the key to the Congress and the White House in the US. So they want to exert influence. Israel knows that it is Saudi and the UAE that need Israel far more than Israel needs the UAE and Saudi Arabia. It is Bin Zaid who needs Israel so that Israel can lobby the White House on his behalf. It is Bin Salman who needs Israel to lobby the White House on his behalf. Without Israel, Bin Salman's lobbying capabilities in the White House are significantly diminished. And that's how Netanyahu is approaching his relationship with the Arab states in that Israel has established itself it is there, it is dominant, it's not going anywhere. The Arabs try to remove it, they fail to remove it. We're here to stay and the recognition of the UAE of Israel is a victory because of that perseverance, because of their success, because the UAE quite simply has given up on trying to restore the Palestinian cause and therefore it recognizes Israeli might. Therefore it is preposterous that the UAE, which is a defeated party, can dream of being an equal partner with Israel when it is Israel that has essentially created an environment where the UAE feels it should normalize ties with Israel and likewise with Saudi Arabia which was once a prime enemy of uh, Israel the fact that bin Salman now is willing to discard that aside to establish normalization of ties is the result of Israeli efforts uh, that are saying in Arabic regardless of all of the efforts of Saudi Arabia Israel has established itself so bin Salman has no right to say to Israel this is what we want in exchange for this bin Salman needs Israel and therefore bin Salman will go to uh, in accordance with what Israel wants as opposed to vice versa and that's why we see this anger coming from Bin Zayed because Bin Zayed's expectations were far different Bin Zayed truly believed he would be seen as an equal and it's becoming increasingly clear that Netanyahu quite simply has a disdain for these Arab states and sees them as quite simply inferior and that it is Israeli power that has forced normalization not any will or good grace on the part of the UAE. Yeah and uh, would you say that in that context, there's a, a strong element of racism. I think, uh, look, the, the problem is when an Arab cries racism or Palestinian cries racism towards the Israelis, it doesn't gain much traction. It doesn't gain much popularity. We saw with Biden administration uh, in that when the ICC suggested it would investigate war crimes, Biden is having none of it uh, in, 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 in harsh terms, just as we saw from Donald Trump when he was firmly with Israel. There's a continuity with this. Even when the spokesman in the White House was asked, where do the Palestinians go for justice? There was no answer. In other words, there is no place they can go for justice. So I could sit here with you on the Arab Digest and say, yes, it's to do with racism, but there is no benefit in it because the international community is it's committed to seeing it uh, take uh, 
established on Palestinian land. It's already accepted that some of the Palestinian land has been taken and it has sought to legalize it by recognizing uh, the Israeli state. And now the issue is about how much of the stolen land should be recognized as the state of Israel as opposed to restoring justice. So I think with regards to uh, whether it's to do with racism, I think it has entirely to do with racism. It comes from a superiority complex and it comes from the victor complex. Israel is winning. Israel has forced it, has imposed itself on the region. The Arabs have failed to drive it back, have failed to uh, help the Palestinian cause in order to assert justice, in order to assert its rights. They failed to convince the US of the merits of protecting the Palestinians. They failed to convince Europe of the merits of protecting the Palestinians. Both Europe and the US are simply quite silent and have not taken any tangible steps to prevent the expansion of Israel. Some will argue that uh, Israel, that Netanyahu's reversal on the annexation of the West Bank is an example of international pressure. I argue the only reason Netanyahu didn't do it is because he was unsure what to do with the demographics. If he annexed it, he has a problem in that Israelis, uh, the, the Israeli majority will be threatened by an increased uh, Arab uh, inclusion as Israeli citizens. And the fear has always been that if Arabs become the majority, then in a democratic vote, they will essentially take back their lands via democracy. So there's an, always been a keen sense of trying to make sure that the Israeli contingent is the majority. And until Netanyahu has an idea what to do with these large Arab demographics that he will annex, he will not annex the West Bank. So it's nothing to do with international pressure, but everything to do with protecting the, uh, the integrity between quotation marks of the Israeli state. Uh, so yes, it's to do with the racism, it's to do with the victor complex. Uh, and I think that's reflected in the way Netanyahu treats Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Mm. Now, just staying with Saudi Arabia, let us... Uh two men wander where angels fear to tread, and that's women and the hijab. Uh, you tweeted an image of a Saudi tourism advert with an uncovered woman, and you said this in your tweet. This has been Salman's message. This is my Saudi Arabia. This is what it looks like. Why has that image got you riled up, Sammy? I think uh, it's important to highlight that it's not the issue of hijab in and of itself or the freedom of women to wear hijab or not to wear hijab. Primarily, we have to remember that in Islam, there is no compulsion in religion. If somebody wants to wear it, they wear it because Allah said so. And if they don't want to wear it, that's between them and Allah. And uh, as a Muslim, uh, I encourage uh, women to wear the hijab, but it's not for me to say that you have to wear it. So the issue here is not to do with freedom. The issue is to do with the messaging. What bin Salman is, is why bin Salman is using a non-hijabi to deliver his message of Saudi Arabia. And it is that a recognition uh, on the part of bin Salman that what Europe and the US really want to see is the removal of Islamic influences and signs of Islam. And we've seen this not just in Saudi Arabia, we've seen it in other countries. When you look at Libya, which uh, is a, a conservative country in and of itself in terms of Islamic practices, when they came to choose the foreign minister, they chose a woman who does not wear hijab in order to show progress. It was intentionally done to show to Europe and the US that we are progressive and willing to put a woman who does not wear hijab, suggesting that if they did put a woman with hijab, it would reflect regression in the manner that perhaps Macron suggested in his interview in 2020, when he suggested that voting for the Islamist parties or Islamic leaning parties was a sign of regression during the Arab Spring. In Tunisia, the Nahava party, which has done extensive tours of European capitals and the US to assert that they believe in moderate Islam, have taken great care to ensure that they promote women without hijab specifically in order to show to Europe and the US that we are progressive 
suggesting an implication that to appoint a woman with hijab is not enough because it shows that they are still holding on to regressive values. And we saw in Nahda's uh, candidate for the Tunisia, for the mayor of Tunis, the capital, they chose a woman without hijab in order to present themselves as we are promoting not just women uh, rising to power, but women without hijab. And look how free and how progressive we are. And that denotes something in the subconscious, which is very dark, which is why is it that if we use the hijab to promote our countries, to promote our identity, to promote our culture. Why is it still received as regressive? Why is it that the very freedom that enables a woman to wear the hijab, which is equivalent to the freedom of a woman who chooses not to wear the hijab, why is one still seen as regressive while the other is seen as progressive? This messaging is not done willy-nilly. Messaging is very carefully thought of. Why did Muhammad bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, the land of the two holy mosques, the land of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa peace be upon him why is it that Saudi Arabia which has always positioned itself as the leader of the Muslim world why is it that bin Salman believes that he must use women without the hijab in order to convey a message the message is clear in that picture that I put on Twitter it is a beautiful woman with her hair done up with the makeup done with wonderful earrings uh, with the dress to say this is progress this is my new Saudi Arabia this was not allowed before and now I am allowing it and therefore this is progress the removal of that hijab is progress and this is the reason in that uh, this is the reason why in, in your words I got riled up in the sense that why does progress have to be reflected in this manner as opposed to this idea of uh, uh, allowing a woman to choose how she dresses uh, in whatever manner she wishes to dress without allowing that to affect any messaging in short without going on too long uh, about it the idea that using a woman without hijab reflects progression is the problem that I wanted to, uh, to raise. Why is it that if this is the case? This is something that we have to think about because this has grave implications over a political discourse in the Arab world because it goes away from freedom of women and rather it falls under the banner of the wider suspicions of the region, which is that what Europe and the US really want to see is an elimination of all forms of Islam in, the pol in politics as France is perhaps more open in advocating and to see a social engineering of the region to, to create quasi-European states with European values, with Western values that are superior, uh, as the economists suggested in 1924 when Ataturk abolished the caliphate, that are superior to all other values and specifically those Islamic values. You also had a tweet about uh, the Saudi foreign minister, Faisal bin Farhan, heading off to Doha, that was last week, uh, just a couple of months after the end of the Great Gulf feud. And you posed the question, why did he go? To which you gave your own answer. MBS is struggling and wants Qatar's help. But it's just a few months ago that Prince Bandar compared Qatar to a tick on a camel. The state is not worth a mention. Is MBS really that desperate, Sammy? I think uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, let's put ourselves in his shoes. The Biden is forcing negotiations in Yemen that are going to entrench the Houthis on his southern border. Biden is intent on a nuclear deal with Iran that will cement Iran's uh, militias in Iraq, that will cement Iranian influence in Syria, that will cement Iranian influence in Lebanon and essentially entrench this uh, encirclement of Saudi Arabia that Iran has uh, essentially achieved through Iraq uh, to the north, through Iran mainland to the east and through Yemen uh, to the south. Bin Salman is realizing that as a result of the Khashoggi affair and the relentless negative PR 
over his policies, that companies are not receptive to his uh, offers for them to establish their offices in Riyadh. And we saw even Japanese banks uh, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has spent considerable time trying to convince to come to Saudi Arabia. We saw Nomura, one of Japan's biggest banks, decide to close its office in uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, but leave its office in the UAE uh, open. We're seeing that Mohammed bin Salman, uh, his, uh, he unilaterally sought reconciliation with Qatar, which upset the UAE, which upset Egypt, but also upset his standing uh, in the region uh, as the leader of the region by virtue of being leader of Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia no longer has that influence uh, either. Bin Salman uh, is also under significant pressure from the Biden administration, which through the Khashoggi report, while it did not punish Mohammed bin Salman, it nevertheless humiliated him on the public stage and suggests that he's going to have a turbulent four years with the Biden administration. Bin Salman now is trying to rush to insulate himself from anything that might uh, uh, harm or damage his influence or ability to bring about the necessary changes of Saudi Arabia and the promises that he's made to the Saudi youth uh, who have been enamored by much of his economic and social reforms. If he doesn't deliver on that, then he loses that uh, particular base. So part of that, of course, is reconciling with Qatar to try to keep Al Jazeera uh, and the other uh, Qatari media outlets from uh, from shining that harsh spotlight harsh I put between quotation marks I don't necessarily think it's harsh but from providing that harsh spotlight on Bin Salman's activity that uh, results in uh, congresswomen such as Ilhan Omar uh, and others to start putting legislation that is uh, against uh, Saudi Arabia's interests uh, in Congress so uh, Qatar uh, from Qatar's perspective if you notice the Qataris during the blockade did not uh, as often lambast Saudi Arabia as they did the UAE. Indeed, whenever you talk to Qatari officials, they would always assert that UAE is the architect. It is because of UAE influence and not primarily because of Saudi Arabia. And Hamad bin Jassim himself, the former Qatari prime minister in 2018, suggested that uh, bin Salman was being badly advised. And here he was referring to uh, the UAE and that bin Salman... Uh, has a greater potential and has an opportunity and that Qatar would be able to work with him. And I think it is in this context that Qatar uh, has uh, been willing to reconcile with Saudi Arabia and not punish Mohammed bin Salman because they believe the priority is to break the Saudi-UAE alliance and to do that means to woo Mohammed bin Salman. So bin Salman now is trying to boost these ties uh, with Qatar to leverage Qatar's lobbying uh, network, to leverage, leverage Qatar's uh, media influence and that's part of what we saw in in this visit by the Saudi foreign minister, this affirmation of the reconciliation, this affirmation of ties and the sincerity, um, albeit in a twisted way, a sincerity on the part of Saudi Arabia to uh, expand its friendship with Qatar and essentially utilize the benefits of this friendship that Qatar has offered in improving Saudi Arabia's image, in lessening the pressure on Mohammed bin Salman and even trying to facilitate a reconciliation between Turkey and Saudi Arabia, which has raised the Erdogan's optimism and resulted in Erdogan being public about his desire to reconcile with Saudi Arabia. Sami, I have really enjoyed this and, and I, I will look forward to your tweets as I always do and uh, the opportunity to open them up uh, was, was fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Bill. Very interesting model. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, this felt like a call to account with you being the judge. I think this, the, the listener will be the judge though. <laughs> Thanks very much, Sami. Thanks. Appreciate it, Bill. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sami Hamdi, Editor-in-Chief of The International Interest. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. 
If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.